Good morning. The scripture reading for this morning is 1 John chapter 4, verses 1 through 6, and can be found on page 1023 in your Black Pew Bible. 1 John chapter 4. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, for many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God, and every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them, for he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. They are from the world, therefore they speak from the world, and the world listens to them. We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Okay. Hello again. My name is Mark, and I'm one of the pastors here, and it's good to see all your faces. I'm going to jump right in. Um, in, our, in our fallen nature, in our fallen state as human beings, we listen, we listen to the wrong things, and we listen to the wrong things for multiple reasons. We listen to teaching that flatters our pride. We listen to teaching that makes us feel better about maybe neglecting our duties or avoiding our responsibilities. We listen to the wrong things because we've been lied to. Some of these lies we believe because we want to, and some because our hearts are fickle and our hearts are unruly. And sometimes we listen to the wrong thing because our flesh likes to be pampered and soothed. Last week, we saw the commandment to love one another. It was plain. It was from chapter 3, verse 11, and it says, we should love one another. And then again in chapter 3, verse 23, it says, and this is the commandment, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and we love one another just as he has commanded us. So we love each other the way he's commanded us to love one another. And I'm, I'm not overly naive. I understand. I know that loving one another isn't always easy to do, but it is simple to understand. We know that we should do, we know what we should do much of the time. We understand what patience looks like and what it doesn't look like. We understand what kindness sounds like and what it doesn't sound like. We understand what not insisting on our own way means in our lives. We know when we're not, or we know when we're being irritable or when we're being arrogant or when we're being proud. We know that those are loveless attitudes and we're familiar with them. We know what they sound like and we have a grasp on whether or not we're obeying this command to love one another. However, there are some commands that for whatever reason, whether it's sloth or laziness or lack of vigilance, there are commands that come to us from the scriptures and sometimes the application isn't always obvious to us. We don't see the sin immediately. We need to be reminded that things like unbelief 
aren't neutral. Things like self-deception aren't neutral. There are some commands in the scriptures that we disobey because we are rebellious or we ignore them because we're lazy or we avoid them because they demand a lot from us. We avoid and disobey the command to love one another because we don't feel like it. But today's command is related to spiritual discernment. And this is a command that we disobey, but we might not realize it or understand exactly how we're disobeying that command, the command to not believe every spirit, to not believe spirits of the Antichrist. So if we're going to title this sermon, I call it something along the lines of how, how not to be gullible. Because the truth is, is that even as much as we want being gullible or being unaware of something, we want that to exonerate us. The truth is, is that that's not how it works. As much as we want our aloofness to get us off the hook, it really doesn't work that way. We're guilty of sin and we're guilty of sin before God and the scriptures. You and I aren't treated like hapless victims. We believe lies because they tickle our ears and stroke our pride. We succumb to manipulation because of sin and idolatry in our hearts. We're duped because we have desires in our hearts that we're supposed to master, but they've mastered us instead. We believe all kinds of things that we shouldn't believe, and we do that all the time. We're convinced by bad arguments and unbiblical explanations, both of what's going on inside of you and what's going on outside of you in the world around you. And behind these errors is more than merely a mistake. We have real enemies trying to get us to believe real lies, and we need to take a stand against them by the power of God's Spirit. So how do you recognize lies when they come? How do you, as a Christian, avoid being manipulated? How do you stand in our day with a clear head and a clear conscience against the teachings of false prophets? So today I want to answer four questions drawn out from the text. I want to ask, how do we believe false prophets? How do we test what we believe how have we overcome false prophets? And how do we know what to believe? How do, we, how do we believe false prophets? How does that happen? How do we test what we believe? How have, we've overcome, how have we overcome false prophets? And how do we know what to believe? And then, then before I jump into number one, I'm going to go ahead and pray one more time. So would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, Dear God, would you please cut down the prideful and the arrogant? And would you please lift up the humble and the lowly and the hurting and the afflicted? Would you heal the sick physically and spiritually? Would you help us love the fact that you're in charge? Would you help me love that? And would you change us? Would you shine light in the deep places in our heart that is dark, that shadows make us overlook things? Would you shine your light all the way to the bottom 
Would you shine into the cracks and the crevices and would you help us repent and help us change and help us walk in faithfulness and honesty and integrity and openness? Would you be glorified today, I pray? In Jesus' name, amen. So how do we believe false prophets? Now, I know, I know that question kind of sounds funny. I know it would sound better if it was written in a different way. I know that saying, why do we believe false prophets is a more natural arrangement for the question I'm seeking to answer, but I worded it that way in that unusual way on purpose. Many of the besetting sins in our lives do not have a grip on us because we're ignorant of why we do things. Many of the reasons why we do the things that we do are actually known to us or they're explained to us with painful clarity in the scriptures. The interesting thing is that we're kind of obsessed with answering the why questions these days, but I want us to interact with observable and testable data. So I'm asking how questions today instead of why questions. I'm asking how this happens and I'm doing it on purpose instead of why it happens. And in Genesis chapter three, we get an interesting little illustration of this. In Genesis chapter three, in the narrative of the fall of mankind, we see an illustration of this kind of thing. And in that account, we see Eve is deceived by the serpent and she eats from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And then she gave some to her husband and he eats from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And when Adam eats, it says in Genesis 3, 7, then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made for themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and he said to him, where are you? Where are you? And Adam said, I heard you coming. And because I was naked, I was afraid. And so I hid. And God said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree which I commanded you not to eat? Have you? Have you done this or not? And as the story goes on, Adam blames Eve and Eve blames the serpent and everybody blames God. But what doesn't happen is God doesn't ask Adam why he ate. And God, who knows everything in this moment, doesn't explain to Adam why he ate the fruit. The why isn't a real mystery. And many times it isn't a real mystery with us. Adam listened to his wife and he ate. He did not fear God at that moment and he caved to the ungodly temptation to maybe trust his wife more than God or maybe trust himself more than God. But either way, he transgressed and humankind fell. And our text opens with, beloved, don't believe every spirit, another command, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. Beloved, beloved, dear children, dear friends, don't believe everything you hear. There are voices out in the world coming from false prophets and behind those false prophets are spirits of error. And those spirits are against Christ and seeking to send you down roads of error. 
This is the first kind of realization that has to sink in for us this morning. There's this constant barrage of voices surrounding us, and it isn't neutral. Everyone you listen to does not have your best interest in mind. There are right now in your life spirits of error that are leading you down paths of error, and those paths end in pain and destruction. Now, I'm not trying to say that there's an evil spirit underneath every rock that we turn over. And even if there was, we don't need to be afraid of it. But what I am saying is that you have teachers in your life already. You have influencers in your life. You have communities that you're a part of and you listen to. You have people in your life that you look up to that you listen to. You have Facebook and the media and podcasts and talking heads that are informing you. They're constantly setting ideas in front of your face and in front of your heart, and they want you to believe them. And some of those ideas are lies. They're false. Some of those are false prophets, wicked teachers teaching from the spirit of error. And I want, I want us to leave being able to identify some of the areas in our lives that we are vulnerable to this, that we're vulnerable to believing error. But first, I want to read some other scriptures that remind us that this kind of thing is going to happen, that this kind of thing is going to happen even in God's church. So in Acts chapter 20, verse 28 through 30, it says, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you an overseer to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come, will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert. Second Peter 2. One through three says, but false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false prophets among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their sensuality. And because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Mark chapter 13, verse 22 says, for false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But be on guard. I have told you all things beforehand. In Matthew 7, chapter 15, it says, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruit. And then later in Matthew 24, verse 11, again, Jesus says, and many, many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. How does that happen? How does that happen to us? Or to the person sitting next to you? How do you become vulnerable to false prophets? In John Stott's commentary, he says, neither Christian loving nor Christian believing is to be indiscriminate. So I want us to know how to discriminate. I want, us to, I want to help us recognize how it is that we succumb to false teaching in the first place. And to do that, I want to offer three quick suggestions. One, we become lazy in our discernment. 
Two, we grow cold in our love. And three, we become discontent. First, the scriptures command sober-mindedness. The Bible tells us to be watchful. The Bible tells us to be vigilant. These are action verbs and action requires energy. These action verbs require the Christian to be active in their mind, to pay attention. What's the opposite of sobriety? Being drunk, being overcome by your passions, being intoxicated and unable to think clearly, being dazed and buzzed and cloudy in our mind. What's the opposite of being watchful, being sleepy and dull? What's the opposite of being vigilant? The opposite of being vigilant, something active and necessary that takes energy to pay attention. The opposite of that is being negligent or being inattentive. So both of those words are sins of omission. What you don't do, what you don't do is often how you find yourself believing false prophets. Second, the scriptures say, don't be slothful in zeal. The scriptures command us to love the Lord our God with all our hearts and minds and souls and strength. And when we drift, when we drift, we don't drift into passionate devotion to God. When we, when we coast, we coast off the road and into a tree. When we tread water, we're floating backward in our love for God. You know this in your own marriage or in your friends' marriages. You see them around you all the time. People don't go from this kind of burning, hot devotion, fidelity, commitment, and deep love for one another one day and then wake up the next morning just cold and stale and indifferent. More often than not, marriages die from neglect, not difficult circumstances. And when your love for God is shriveling and dying, then you will be more vulnerable to spirits of error. And then third, we become discontent. Second Timothy 4, three through four says, for the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but have itching ears. They will accumulate for themselves teachers. And they, so People will not be able to take sound teaching or sound doctrine and instead they'll, ga they'll gather teachers to listen to. And the kind of teachers they gather to listen to are ones that, back to 2 Timothy, that suit their own passions and will turn away, turn them away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. So let me invite you to consider something. Let me invite you to consider that we usually... Don't listen to liars that make our life harder. We usually don't listen to false teachers who tell you that you have to walk uphill. We usually don't listen to false prophets who are raising the stakes on your godliness. We don't listen to errors that require more of us. We listen to liars when they speak with the grain of the passions we already have revving underneath the surface. Our passions are revving underneath the surface of our hearts and we want to give up, we want to give in, we want to be told that it's okay to quit or indulge or, indulge or doesn't God want you to be happy? And our ears perk up because they itch to listen to those kind of whispers. And then we believe them and we drift and we drift, and we drift, and we drift our way far 
out to sea. Far away from Christian community, far away from sound doctrine, far away from the truth. That's how drifting works. So how do we know who to listen to? Second question, how do we test what we're believing? Now, as we talk about the test, I want to do two things in this moment. I want to call out false believers, and I want to strengthen true believers in this room. Verse 2, by this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God, and every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. This specific test is probably related to the specific group that's left John's community here. There were probably individuals that were denying that Christ actually came in the flesh, that he was really a man. But this test is deeper and broader than merely technical agreement. To prove this, you only need to think of places in the scriptures where demons recognize Jesus for who he is. One commentator points out at this, in this moment that the demons many times have a better Christology than many liberal theologians do. Mark 3 verse 11 says, And whenever the unclean spirit saw him, that's Jesus, whenever the unclean spirit saw Jesus, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. Mark 5, 7 through 8, a demon-possessed man is speaking, and the text says, when he saw Jesus from far away, when he saw Jesus from far away, he ran and fell down in front of him, and crying out with a loud voice, he said, what, did, what have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? So these kinds of realities should be chilling when we read them. There's, there's an accurate answer that isn't enough. Baked into the test that John's presenting is the idea of allegiance and submission and love for God. The demons do not demonstrate allegiance to or love for God. This, this confessing, this word, this confessing Jesus is different than merely acknowledging Jesus or accepting reality for what it is. The fact that Jesus came in the flesh, that's just an objective truth. That is objective reality. So if you find yourself in the room this morning and you believe Jesus came in the flesh, but you don't care about it, that's not good enough. Now please be encouraged. You're not lost. The gospel is proclaimed to you again right now. You can repent of indifference, repent of rebellion. You can ask Christ to change your heart even now in this moment. But... If, if we believe without loyalty, if we give assent without devotion, if we acknowledge without affection, then we believe like the demons believe. And that's not shaming, that's not a guilt trip, but it is a warning. It is a warning. There's a way that you can sound like you passed this test and be a child of the devil. And that's not my language, that's John's language. There's a way that you can talk the talk and walk the walk, and yet inside, your heart of hearts can be filled with nothing but stone-cold rebellion and indifference. 
And I'm telling you that because I love you. And we love you. And you are really, really welcome here. I'm glad you're here. And you can, the invitation is that you can leave your rebellion, repent of a hard heart, and come and welcome to Jesus Christ. If you find yourself a false believer, don't stay there. Believe today and come to Jesus. Now, now I also in this, in this moment want to strengthen those of you in this room who've placed your faith in Christ. You see, in one way, for Christians, John's test is really obvious for us. We can even jump right past it. In fact, in our church, I would guess that most of you who call yourself a Christian would not believe somebody who's peddling lies that demand that you give up the historical truth of Jesus in the flesh. But we are still tugged. We're tugged by false teachers in a different way. And that's also related to Jesus and his divinity. And I want to help us with that this morning. In short, I want to remind us, I want to, I want to remind us that any system any belief or theory that requires Jesus to be anything less than what he says about himself in the scriptures is antichrist. There are other religions in the world. There are competing worldviews in the world. There are false prophets in the world. And I want to strengthen you and help you to walk in bold compassion and say that there's only Christ on one side of the line and then everything else on the other team. Some of us need to be reminded that Christian apologetics, and what I mean by that is the kind of Christian explanation for why Christianity is true and why what Jesus says about himself is true and why what, what he did is the truth, is not a battle that's waged on the field of ideas. Now, what do I mean by that? I mean that we can tend to think this way. We can put Jesus on a field of ideas and then we put Islam on the same field and then you put Buddhism on the field and secular humanism and atheism and you put them all on the field of ideas and you let them fight it out, but don't worry, Jesus wins, right? I wanna say that that isn't Christian apologetics. The point of Christ is not that he wins all the debates with all the other religions. The point of Christ is that without him, debates don't happen at all. Christ doesn't win on the playing field of religious ideas. He holds the field together constantly with his word. We're not in a battle with Muslims or Hindus or New Age philosophy or Zen Buddhists or atheists or agnostics or anything else in the universe. There is Christ and there is Antichrist and those are the only two categorical realities. So how do you test beliefs? How do you test what the, spirit, what the spirit behind a belief is? You set it against the word of God. You set it next to what Jesus says about himself. And when you find incongruity, you don't mold the Bible so that it fits with the belief. You discard the belief. When these people who've left the church in 1 John, when they said that Jesus didn't come in the flesh, John doesn't recommend some kind of compromise. He doesn't propose a change to amend the doctrinal statement. He doesn't suggest that these Christians adjust the terms of the agreement. He doesn't say that love requires concession. He says the opposite. 
Whoever knows God listens to John, listens to the apostolic witness, listens to the apostles. And if someone doesn't listen to the apostles, then they're not from God. So don't believe them. And, and you can stand stable on that ground at that moment. Let me free you in two ways specifically regarding false teaching. False teaching and our Christian walk, okay? As you believe the gospel, as you hold the scriptures high, as you orient your whole life by what God says in his word, you can do that with joy, like full, solid, stable joy, and you don't have to be defensive and you don't have to feel threatened. I think much of our bad behavior comes not from the nature of the truth, but from our misguided insecurities about our own anxieties. As a Christian, if you think Jesus is on the field of ideas trying to win, then you will argue with fear that he could lose. But if you understand that Jesus in his sovereign reign over all creation is allowing this very exchange to take place, when you realize that Jesus is the one who's providing the breath in your opponent, then you can relax. Jesus is not stressed out about who's winning. Now, the scriptures are clear that we should be ready to make a defense for what we believe, but we don't have to be defensive. The scriptures are clear. God does not put the outcome on our shoulders. You don't have to feel that kind of pressure. Now, that's not to say that we shouldn't be grieved by the lies that people that we love believe, but we don't have to feel threatened by them. We can stay sober-minded and full of joy because the war is already won. And it wasn't on us in the first place, which brings me to my third question. How have we overcome false prophets? How have we overcome the false prophets? Verse four says, little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who's in the world. In chapter three, verse 24, we read, and by this we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us, the Holy Spirit, the spirit of the living God, the spirit of Christ is the spirit that we have here right now with the body of Christ and with us personally. We have been united to Christ in such a way that when he wins, we're winning. When he's victorious, we're victorious. When he's triumphant, we're triumphant. That's the deal. The truth has corporate and individual implications. Jesus says in the Gospel of John that I've said these things to you that in, in me, in me, united to me, in me, you may have peace. In the world, you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. That's not conditional. That isn't on you. That isn't something you can do. Your peace can be real because everything that opposes God has been overcome. Every falsehood, every dark power, every evil force in the world has been overcome. The full consummation of this reality hasn't happened yet. This is the already and not yet nature of, 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 of the scriptures and of eschatology and end times. 
The full consummation hasn't happened yet, but the critical, okay, the decisive event has been accomplished already. Ephesians 6, 10 through 20 says this, or Ephesians 6, 10 says this. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we don't wrestle with flesh and blood, but against rulers, against authorities, against cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And a little bit later, it says, to that end, keep alert with all perseverance. We don't wrestle in a battle that's within our power to win. We've overcome because he's overcome. We prevail because he has prevailed. We conquer because he's already conquered. We defeat our enemy because our enemy's already been defeated. He breaks the power of canceled sin. He sets the prisoner free. You can't free yourself. You can't win unless Christ is won, and he has. And if he has, then you've, you've overcome. That's not a conditional statement. Your battle with evil, with sin, with the spirit of error in your life is a battle that Christ has already won. So friends, man, let's fight like we're winning. Let's fight to finish his demise. Let's fight like there's a host of angels in our corner rooting for us. And remember that our God is the kind of God that is so committed to us understanding that he wins, that he's the strongest, that he's the most powerful, that he never loses. He's so committed to us understanding that truth that he regularly drops us in the middle of stories just like David and Goliath. Every time you find yourself pinched between the Red Sea and Pharaoh's army, he makes a way. He wins every time. This is overwhelming, and I am burdened that you get this. I want, I want it to sink down so deep into your heart that it completely changes your life. We have a father who stacks the deck against himself all the time just so that he can crush the opposition right in front of our faces. He doesn't do that so that he can stroke his own ego. He does it so that you can know in a deeper and deeper and deeper way how much he loves you, how much he cares for you, how safe you will always be when you hide in him instead of hiding from him. So right now, does your life intimidate you? God has plans for that situation. Are you afraid of losing something? God's planning on glorifying himself? Are you facing opposition in your life that is high and scary and painful? God is higher, God is scarier, and God doesn't lose, ever. His whole career is all knockouts all the time. And our hope is not that we can do it. Our hope is not that we can figure it out. Our hope is not that we can be strong enough. Our hope is the fact that God's not only stronger than every single scary thing in your life. He's not only stronger, he's already won. And this takes us to question number four. My fourth question and conclusion is, how do we know? 
How do we know what to believe then? How do we know which spirit to believe? How do we figure that out? And the, and the questions I want to ask to help us figure that out are simple. They're plain. Does it glorify Christ or not? Does it paint a true picture of Christ or not? Does it honor the words that Jesus said about himself or not? Does it make Christ look weak or inept or anemic? Does it glorify Christ or does it glorify the person it's coming from? Does it magnify Christ or does it magnify a platform? Does it aim all the praise and all the majesty and all the trust in one single direction, the direction of Jesus Christ, or does it try to get you to share your allegiance to Jesus with somebody else or with some other idea? That's how you know what to believe. Does what you're listening to tickle your ears and set your lusts free? Or does it cause you to pick up your cross and follow Jesus because he's worth everything, worth all the struggle, worth all the exhaustion and all the derision? Are you being baited by the glitz and glamour of the kingdoms of this world or are you being called to endure reproach for the sake of Jesus? Does it make you feel cozy with your sin or justified in your laziness or complacent about your zeal or does it help you kill your sin? Does it pamper your flesh or does it call you to crucify your flesh? Are you being encouraged to cut corners or are you being called up to something higher to endure self-sacrifice and hardship? Are you being offered an escape hatch for your lust to survive or are you quenching your sinful desires by the power of God's spirit? What are the voices in your life saying? Whoever it is, if they're telling you that you don't have to listen to the Bible, if they're telling you that you don't need to listen to the witness of the apostles in the scriptures, then that is the spirit of error. Are the sharp edges of the Bible being rounded off? Error is the divinity and authority of Jesus being diminished. Error. Are the words of scripture being convoluted or reinterpreted? Error. Are the instructions of the Bible being called old-fashioned or oppressive? Error. Are truth and love being defined outside of the word of God? Error. Is someone saying, did God really say? Error. The world and false spirits are competing with Christ. And that means that they will try to get us to take the broad way that looks easy. And in the end, it leads to destruction. Your best defense is a good offense. One, one scholar says, quote, both believe and test are imperatives calling for continuous action and vigilance. Further, the word test carries the idea of putting something to rigorous examination to discover its genuineness, end quote. Test what you hear against the word of God. And friends, nothing the Bible tells you to do will ever be inconsistent with love. 
That needs to be understood because there is a false prophet out there right now in the world telling us that to love people well means to rearrange God's word or to undermine God's word or to twist God's word, just like in Paul's day. In 2 Peter, it says, there are some things in them that are hard to understand. He's referencing the writings of Paul. There are some things that Paul says that are hard to understand. So we can all find solidarity there. Which is the, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction and they do it as they do the other scriptures. This has always been happening. But as one scholar says, quote, love as John understands it is apparently not indiscriminate affirmation, but discerning devotion. Friends, to love people well means we discern well. If someone is telling you that in order to love them, you must disobey Christ or disobey his word, that is a spirit of error, not the truth. And that spirit is everywhere in our day. Now, you and I are fallen people and we make tons, we get it wrong a lot. So we will never love perfectly, but we must also not capitulate to the grand and cancerous errors of our day. We will not always love perfectly, but that does not mean that we surrender any truth about what love is. We will make mistakes in our stand against error, but that does not mean that we give up or yield even an inch. It means that we repent a lot and we ask for forgiveness a lot and then we get up and we keep going. And all the while, we must remember that even when we sin or fall, we remember that we have an advocate with the Father and he's already overcome the world. We have zero logical threat to our lives. And God's kingdom doesn't rise or fall on our shoulders. Our burden is light because Jesus carries everything. His yoke is easy because, because he's the one who's already overcome the world and he's in us. And when the battle feels insurmountable, right then, pay attention, God's going to do something amazing. Christian, you're not empty-handed in your battle to love and you are not alone in your battle to believe. Don't believe everything you hear. Look to Christ, look to his word and encourage your brothers and sisters daily. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, would you give us the grace Would you give us the grace to love other people with courage and compassion? Out of humility? Would you crucify pride or arrogance or self-righteousness in us? Would you crucify it? Would you kill it? Would you help us love other people from a posture of our knees? And let us do it with the kind of joy and rejoicing and stable joy, solid, stable joy that comes from knowing that the outcome isn't on us. So we don't have to feel threatened and 
We don't have to be defensive. Free us from that anxiety. Free us from those pressures. You are righteous and true and right and good. You will do right, judge of all the earth. You are reigning now over everything, every heart in this room. Would you give us more courage, more faithfulness, more diligence? And would you set us free? Set us free from lies? Set us free from false prophets, from deception? Give us, give us everything that we need. We look to you over and over and over again, and we'll come back and look to you again and again and again. In- increase our faith. Even as we go today, Lord, would you increase our faith, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.